Hello out there. It's great to be connecting with you again. Today, I'm sharing a candid conversation about human plumbing with Dr. Kelly Kasperson. Dr. Kasperson is a board-certified urologist who is very passionate about educating and empowering people to take care of their bodies. In our chat, she sheds light on what normal means when it comes to our human plumbing and what can go wrong, including UTIs and incontinence. We also discuss potential solutions, including bladder training, pelvic therapy, and medical interventions. It turns out that urinary tract issues are incredibly common. Yet, because we rarely discuss them openly, those who suffer can end up feeling ashamed or powerless. My hope is that this conversation helps some of you to understand and normalize your experiences and to chart your path forward. For more from Dr. Kasperson, please check out part two of our conversation in which we discuss her other area of expertise, sexual well-being in women. I also highly recommend her book and podcast, both entitled You Are Not Broken. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Hello and welcome to the show, Dr. Kasperson. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I am really thrilled to be talking about human plumbing, which I think is a conversation that needs to happen more openly and more often, but doesn't. So you're just the right person to be kind of normalizing some of these conversations and getting to know your own body. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say today. Thanks. Yeah, it's great. So why don't we start with what does a urologist do? Because most of us probably haven't seen one. I know I haven't. Urologist is a subset of surgery. So they're considered surgical subspecialists and their area of expertise is the genital urinary system. So stereotypically men, the male genital urinary system, but where most of us are pretty comfortable with the female as well. So it's kidneys, ureters, bladder, prostate, testicles, penis, vulva, vagina. Did I forget anything in there? I don't think so. And what are some of the most common issues that uh, men or women come to you with? So for men, the most common issue, I'd say kidney stones and then like enlarged prostate issues. Prostate cancer would also be one. So trouble getting the urine out as opposed to what the females or vulva owners have, which is also they also have kidney stones, but trouble holding their urine in. Okay, so why don't we start with that, the urine out side of the equation. I am a really big fan of trying to help people understand just normal and normal variation because I don't think there's enough appreciation for that in so many aspects of human physiology. So so can you talk a little bit about normal, like how often do people pee and how does that change throughout your lifespan? Yeah, I think it's a, such a great question to address because people don't know this, right? Like we don't get taught what normal urination is and then you go your whole life and something's wrong and you're like, I had no idea. I saw a lady yesterday, she was peeing three times a day and I'm like, do you know what normal is for urination? And she's like, three times a day? Now it's six to eight, let alone if you're somebody who is very well hydrated, you're probably going to go more than that. But it, at the other side, there are people who are peeing 15 to 20 times a day. And I'm like, you know, the normals like six to eight. So it's really, you know, being able to hold and then empty your bladder every two to three hours. So in a 16 hour day, that's eight times. Okay. If you're, if you're going every two hours. And does that normal change significantly and consistently throughout your lifespan? No, I don't think so. Not that I've seen. People, people tend to get more overactive bladder, urinary urgency and frequency in the perimenopause, menopause uh, lifespan. But, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that's normal more than it's common. 
Now, one thing that I have heard is that nighttime peeing patterns can change with, and that it's more common when you're as an older adult to have to wake up at night. So what's going on there and what, what should we think of as normal versus something we can work on? Yeah. So over the age of 65, two times and less is considered normal. It has to do with a couple of things. Number one, the sleep gets a little more dysregulated as we age, but then also our kidneys ability to concentrate urine decreases as we age. So we're just making more urine at night. We got to get up and get it out. Sorry, can you explain why we're making more urine? Because your kidney isn't able to basically concentrate it as well. So the urine is more dilute. Yeah, you're you're, you're not being able to hang on to its fluids, right? So it can't concentrate it and hang on to it. So it's going out. But getting up at night is multifactorial, right? Like people come in, they think it's a bladder problem, but it's really like, how active are you? There's a huge correlation between physical activity and how awake you are during the daytime and then getting up at night. Huge relationship with frailty in general and getting up to urinate at night. You know, huge risk factor for hip fractures that people are getting up to urinate at night. They're going to slip on a rug, break a hip. Sleep issues, medications that you're taking, sleep apnea will make you get up and urinate more at night, congestive heart failure, you know, hanging onto fluid in your legs. So when you come to a urologist and you're like, I'm peeing too much at night, we have to think about all those other things in trying to figure out why, it's, why you have that unique problem. So sometimes the frequent urination could be the cause by something other than the bladder. And likewise, that frequent urination could actually be part of the cascade that causes other problems like a risk of falling. That's right. Yeah. And it's good to know, you know, because I tell people like urologists have the toughest time getting you to get up less at night because it's the sleep, how much you're drinking at night. Are you drinking water when you're getting up to pee at night? I always tell people if you feed your kidneys, it's going to be feeding your bladder. So fluid in, certainly limit those before you go to bed if you don't want to get up and urinate. Now, I want to talk a little bit about, yeah, more on this area of bladder training and trying to to change what your current urination pattern is. So you said some people are far below normal, some people are above normal. Now, what if you want to change it? How much control do you have? And, I, and I'll just quickly say, I personally actually went on a bit of a bladder training mission a couple of years ago because I've always gone quite often and I made a point of trying to go less often. And I was actually very surprisingly successful in a relatively short period of time. So I wonder how how common that is to be able to address that issue by by being mindful of how much you consume and also just kind of pushing how long I wait. Yeah, yeah, well, bladder bladder training, right? So our bladder is a very trainable organ unlike our heart or you know other other organs because we are in diapers and then at a socially acceptable time we decide we don't want to be in diapers anymore or our parents decide we they don't want us in diapers anymore so we learn to hold our bladder. Now it's not totally easy. You can't just have all control over your bladder and your pelvis as as we age. But yeah, certainly that shows how trainable the bladder can be. You know, you're like, I have potty trained my kid in a weekend. It's like, yeah, bladders are pretty trainable. But people who just, you know, if, especially if you were trained, like, let's say you had a mom who like made you pee all the time, right? Like, I had every, that mom. Yeah. <laughs> and so you just get trained to pee all the time. And then at some point you're like, huh, I wonder if I space this out. And yes. pelvic floor physical therapists are really good at training training people to go and timed voiding, especially for people who kind of have that urgency frequency is like, okay, just take your bladder to the bathroom every hour. And now every hour and a half and now every two hours and try to space it out. That's exactly what I did. I think I was probably doing every hour and a half and then I've gotten up to every two to three hours now. And I hope my mom isn't too embarrassed by this, but she's, she's somebody who we go traveling with her and she'd ever say, she'd always say, oh, here's a bathroom. We might as well use it since we're here. And she still does. And she comes over and she pees as soon as she arrives and she pees before she leaves as if bathrooms are a very scarce commodity. And, and then 
all of her children are super frequent peers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you wonder what her mom taught her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you know, uh, I'm a geneticist, so I'm always thinking about like, what's the balance of nature versus nurture here? And I think this one, I mean, we can't say for sure, but it seems like because I could train myself out of it, it's very much a nurture thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, you have the pelvis that your parents gave you too, right? So there certainly Mm -hmm. is like an anatomy thing to it, but you'll hear that. You'll be like, we know that people who have sisters or mothers with recurrent urinary tract infections, there is a genetic susceptibility to urinary tract infections. But also it's just like, you know, if you lived in a family that you had to pee all the time, you might tend to pee all the time. Yes. There's, yeah, there's one more thing I want to talk about with regards to the, the peeing, then I, then I definitely want to move on to urinary tract infections that you just alluded to. So a common thing after childbirth is to, you know, not, not be able to jump on the trampoline. I went to it, you and I actually met at a trampoline park and I had another uh, experience with another mom who said, you know, I, I'm just not going to join my kids, there's just no way I can. And I think that's a very common sentiment among mothers, even with children like seven years old and, and so on. What's your advice for, for people in that situation? How much do you resign yourself to it? How much do you invest in? What can you expect? What's realistic expectation, I guess, for if you want to invest in that? Well, first of all, just normalizing how incredibly common it is, and you're going to see it more in a vaginal delivery versus a C-section. And I'm not promoting C-sections for prevention of incontinence. I'm just sharing data of there's something about the baby going through the vaginal canal that affects the pelvic floor more than just the nine months of having a baby in your pelvis. But certainly, you know, you can have a C-section and still have stress incontinence afterwards. So very common, one in three women will have stress incontinence. Stress incontinence means leaking with cough, sneeze, laugh, trampoline. That's one of the questions I ask my patients. I'm like, what if I just brought in this brand new trampoline that I bought? Would you jump on it? And would, you know, would you leak? And that's kind of a good test of like, oh yeah, no, I'd totally leak with that. It's quality of life. You know, it's quality of life. If this doesn't bother you, except for, you know, the trampoline, maybe you don't have a lot of trampolines in your life, so you don't have to do anything about it. Right. But if you're limiting your job, if you're limiting your ability to exercise, if you're limiting your ability to get out there and, you know, kick a soccer ball with your kids, whatever you want. If it's affecting your quality of life, go see somebody who's trained. Pelvic floor physical therapy is your first go-to. Sometimes we just have some imbalances or some weaknesses and they can really make a difference. There was a study comparing mid-urethral slings to pelvic floor physical therapy a couple of years ago and they're equivalent. They both work great. Now over the long run, the sling works better. And why is that? Because you don't have to do anything. Right. <laughs> Whereas with a pelvic floor physical therapy, you got it. You might have to keep up on the exercises in order to notice that you're, you know, you're staying dry. So the new kid on the block for people, because a lot of people don't know about this, is it's called bulking. It's basically if you think of lip filler, right? It's lip filler <laughs> for your urethra. It's just adding more volume to increase more volume to help prevent the leakage when you cough, sneeze, and laugh. It's adding resistance. The nice thing about the the fillers, and Bulkamid is the name of the brand for that, is that there's no downtime, right? It's not like putting a sling in where you can't lift or, or have sex for, you know, lift heavy weights or have sex for about four weeks. So there's no downtime with the filler, and it's about five minutes of a procedure, and it's, it's great. doesn't work quite as well as a sling, but for people who are like, you know what, I don't want any mesh risks as I get older. Um, I, just, I don't think I'm ready for a mesh surgery right now. I've, maybe I've heard things, or my cousin had a bad outcome, whatever it might be. There's still treatment options available, and I'd say physical therapy first, and then the urethral filler, Bulkamid. It's, it's been a game changer. Women love it. Fascinating. So on to another very common ailment that maybe is underappreciated just how common it is, a urinary tract infection. So how common are they? And you know, what do we know about 
causes. Yeah, it's the one. It's one of the top eight reasons that people go to the doctor. So urinary tract, and it's the most common infection, most common reason that people go to primary care doctor. So recurrent urinary tract infection is two in six months or three in a year is the definition of it. And certainly we know just by taking an antibiotic, you increase your risk of having another UTI because you've totally messed up your microbiome. Right. So you're most susceptible to getting another UTI right after you got treated for one. It's very common. What a urologist does is basically, you know, we pick on you a little bit, make sure you're drinking enough water, make sure you're urinating six to eight times a day if you've been the the holder and then rule out any sort of anatomy causes. Right. The other thing to rule out or to help women with perimenopause and menopause is making sure they have vaginal estrogen because the vagina does play a role in preventing urinary tract infections. And if the vagina loses its lactobacillus and loses its acidity because of low estrogen, your your risk of recurrent urinary tract infection will skyrocket. Sorry, do you do we know the mechanism there of the role of estrogen? Yeah, yeah so so estrogen promotes acidity of the vagina. Oh, okay. And when you have acidity, that's the that's the world that lactobacillus needs to live in. Okay. Right. So now you've got your good microbiome and lactobacillus works in preventing the E. coli. First of all, E. coli hates the acidity of the vagina, and then the lactobacillus will, you know, compete or make the E. coli not go from the bum, the backside to the front side of the urethra. So the vagina is actually a protective organ. We just have to we just have to keep it healthy. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of microbiome research back in grad school, and and I remember explaining to someone once this idea of the protective flora being like, you know, you're in the school lunchroom and every table is full. So when the new kid comes in, there's nowhere for them to sit, and so we want those lactobacilli holding all of the good good spots. Yeah, love it. So what are some preventative strategies that work for people who have this recurring issue? Yeah. Well, if, it, if you're a male, so you don't have a vagina, you don't have any of the hormone issue, go see a urologist because we want to check you for anatomy issues. Is your prostate too big? Are you not emptying your bladder? Do you have a kidney stone? Right. So urinary tract infections in the male, we definitely want to work it up. In the female, again, good hormone status, perimenopause, postmenopause, and beyond. Vaginal estrogen, incredibly safe. Over the counter in the UK, I can't get enough of it. It's good preventative health. Everybody who has recurrent UTIs probably should think about vaginal estrogen if you, if you have a vagina. Drinking water, right? So dilution's a solution to pollution. They did a study. They did a study randomizing women to normal standard of life versus 1.5 liters of water a day. The 1.5 liters of water a day decreased their UTIs by 50 percent. Wow! Yeah, it's pretty significant for water. Yeah. So get it, get your bladder flushed out. Don't hold your bladder. So on the vaginal estrogen, would it make sense to test your estrogen levels to figure out whether that's a cause of systemic estrogen levels? Are those going to be predictive of local vaginal estrogen levels? Are they correlated? And would that be, is there anything diagnostically that would make sense to do there? It's a good question. I mean, so many people want to test their hormones. And if you think like a doctor, the doctor is going to say, what am I going to do with these results? Right. So, but my, my answer is, what's the point of testing? Because if you're postmenopause, your estrogen levels are zero. Do I need to test you to tell you that if you stopped having your periods? No. If you're over the age of 51, do I need to test your hormones to tell you that you're probably postmenopausal? No. Save your money. Now, in the perimenopause, again, what am I going to do with the test that you've now given me? You're perimenopause. You're getting recurring UTIs. You're probably having you know, microbiome and estrogen changes in your vulva. Do I need a test in order to tell you that or to give you treatment? No. So save your money. Don't rely on tests. Worthless. I guess it's also, I mean, related to what you're saying, it's, it's, you think through what's the downside of, of using vaginal estrogen and, and there isn't very much, right? There isn't. I know that you said sometimes you feel that you're, you're, you were put on this planet to advertise for vaginal estrogen. Right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Basically I'm like, I found my niche. Yes. 
<laughs> Nobody else is talking about it and many people can benefit from it. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing. Like, you know, recurring UTIs leading to falls, leading to, you know, nursing home admissions. This is a, you, you can die from infections and the elderly do. Right. And it's like the, to help them out and to actually give them something to help decrease these infections. Like the infections are not benign. You know, the, the amount of time that we have to take off of work, you got to go to the doctor, get antibiotics and the side effects of antibiotics. It's like prevention will save, you know, this country tons of tons of time and money yeah absolutely if, if only they knew about vaginal estrogen <laughs> you know the other thing i tell people is like the only way i can make you never have a uti again like who never has a uti again a dead person right <laughs> like we are living people like i can't make you never have an infection again but if, if we can space them out and if i can educate you on you know you need to drink you need to not hold your pee you need to poop regularly you know constipation increases your risk of uti and vaginal estrogen is like we want to, because so many people, they're hung up. They're like, what about, what do I do about the next time? And I'm like, why don't we talk about prevention? Yes. And I feel like if we're talking about this, we have to talk about cranberry juice because that's what I always hear about and UTI prevention. So, or, or, or treatment. Yeah. And which yeah, one does it do and how effective is it? Yeah, it doesn't treat. And then the data on prevention is mixed simply because anytime you're going to study a non-regulated supplement, you know, 10 different companies are going to have 10 different types of cranberry or concentrations of cranberry. Mm -hmm. I say no to the juice. Number one, it, most people think it tastes bad. It's unnecessary refined sugar. You don't need that in your glucose spikes. So if anything, you're going to use the, the pills. And if anything, use the high quality ones, Allura or Theracran or two like well-known brand names that they actually use the the chemical compounds from the skins. And there's probably something in there that makes the bacteria less sticky. So mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not thumbs down on cranberry, but if you're gonna do it, use the high quality stuff made from the skins in pill form and stay mm -hmm. away from the juice. Now the juice is it'll hydrate you, right? right? But you can you can get calorie free, no sugar water mm -hmm. <laughs> and and do that. Mm -hmm. So that's my thought. Good to know. Thank you. I'd love to talk a bit about common misconceptions. And, and so what are some of the maybe wacky practices that you see people coming in doing that are not effective? And are, are there any that are particularly common that you say, can we please stop doing this? People push at the end of urination and they train. They're just like our bladders are trainable, right? Like we train. And, you know, again, what we don't know is our bladders don't empty perfectly to zero when we urinate. It's a funnel. There's always a little bit of urine left at the bottom of the funnel. So what people find is like, yeah, but if I sit here and then I push, I get a little more out. So that must mean that I have to do that or it must mean that I'm not emptying all the way. And it's like, well, no, that's just what everybody would do. And like straining is not great for you. And you could just stop doing that. That's good. I, I have to admit I have pushed before, but it's mostly because I'm trying to hurry. And, I th and I'm sitting there thinking, how am I hurrying my pee? Like, this is a 30-second process. Why am I trying to hurry this? It's because there's a kid outside, you know, about to cry or whatever. It's, it's usually for that reason. Totally. Well, I think a um, lot of people are on the toilet with their cell phones, too. Oh, yeah. And if you if you ever do an experiment of like being in the in the toilet and being like fully relaxed and taking time versus paying attention to what your pelvic floor is doing when you're on mm. a cell phone, like you're not fully relaxed on a cell phone mm. because you're focusing on the cell phone. Your body's like, she shouldn't urinate right now. She's paying attention to something. And so one thing that we, you know, train ourselves is don't be distracted because you're going to get that pelvic floor to be a lot more relaxed and actually be like, oh, now's the time to go potty. Got it. And is there anything postural? I feel like I've seen some things about oh yeah, toilet postures. Does that something optimal that we should be doing there? Yeah, Squatty Potty is a brand name, but it's basically like a step stool for your feet to change the angle of your hips. And that's, that's more promoted for good bowel habits than urination. But the physical therapists love it. They think it's, it's kind of the more how we used to poop. Toilets are made up. 
very recently. Right, right. right. So is there anything else, things that come up often in your practice that you would like to share with people? This is urologist's job. We've probably heard it before. Don't be, you know, don't be embarrassed. If we haven't heard your story before, we're actually kind of stoked that like you made our day interesting. Don't hold your pee, right? We've created these walls and busy jobs and it'll backfire at some point if you hold your pee. Don't do it. But don't pee before you need to pee necessarily, right? Like, yeah, you don't, you don't have to. <laughs> there isn't a shortage. It's always a balance, right? And so when should you see a urologist? And if you can't get into one, where, where are some good general resources? Yeah, so if you can't get to see a urologist, I would check out a pelvic floor physical therapist. Herman and Wallace, I think it's .com, is kind of one of the national pelvic floor physical therapy resources. You just type in your zip code. Pelvic floor physical therapists are amazing. They can help with a lot of things. They can't change anatomy, right? Like a surgeon can. But a lot of people come see me and they, they don't really need a surgeon. They need a pelvic floor physical therapist. And is there a good FAQ page for any, you know, urology association that you would recommend? So the American Urologic Association has like a whole subset just for individuals and patients about normal health stuff or to, to start your search. Mayo Clinic does a great job too. Those are great resources. And to wrap up, let's share some of your resources because you've got so much to offer. And I just love the way that you deliver with such compassion and humor. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, on my podcast for urology, I have incontinence stuff, prolapse stuff. I've got some interstitial cystitis stuff. So I, I dabble in urology on my podcast. And the podcast is called You Are Not Broken. Excellent. Well, I highly recommend that podcast. Please go check it out. We are going to wrap up this conversation here and we're going to be starting a fresh conversation momentarily about Dr. Casperson's book, You Are Not Broken, and the broader topics surrounding that of sexual well-being. So thanks for listening. Please join us for our next conversation coming up next. Take care. Take care.